we we don't want to be average anymore. We don't want to be an average. I think photography is like a world of average. Let's not be an average industry. Like let's be a, 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 a an industry where people say you're you're a professional you're a professional photographer. That's amazing. You want to be that guy. It's like when you're saying you're a heart surgeon, you're an architect. You don't want to say something like, "Oh God, you're a professional photographer." Like we want to differentiate ourselves from professionals to the billions of people just having expensive SLR or mirrorless cameras out there. Anyone that's just a basic person being a content creator is that's cool, but that's not a, the skills of a serious professional photographer. So I think it is our duty and you too, Creative Life and Kenna and every educator in the world to push everybody who's serious about photography so we make this industry respected again. Welcome to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live. I'm your host, Kenna Klosterman, bringing you true stories from behind the lens and behind the lives of your favorite photographers, filmmakers, and creative industry game changers. From their struggles to their wins, we get the real human stories about why they do what they do. I believe there is something to learn from everyone's story. Listen, get inspired, and discover why in the end, your creative journey is all worth it. This is We Are Photographers with Roberto Valenzuela, and this is his story. Today, I am super excited for another episode of We Are Photographers. That is our podcast here at Creative Live, where I take you personally up close and personal with some of our favorite photographers and filmmakers, again, from all over the world. We talk about their stories and what has made them who they are, because as you know, as a creative, we all go through the ups and the downs, and life is a journey, and we are here to connect. So, our guest today has been part of the Creative Life family for, I think, over eight years. So let's bring him on. I am super excited again for another episode of We Are Photographers. Today's guest is Mr. Roberto Valenzuela. Roberto is a photographer, an educator, an author, and a canon explorer of light. He has written six books, I think, over six books. Um, he has been na named one of the top and most influential photographers in the world. He judges print competitions at major conferences. And of course, he teaches his own workshops uh, in person and online right here on Creative Live, as well as his own. So please help me give a big Creative Live welcome to Mr. Roberto Valenzuela. Roberto, how are you? You know what, Kenna, when you said Welcome to Creative Life. My stomach just like, I got, my stomach just totally, it's your voice announcing me saying welcome to Creative Life. You have no idea how much anxiety my stomach went through because that's when you know that those red lights show up in the studio and you start, you've been preparing, you know, these Creative Life classes. I used to spend three, four months preparing for them. Uh, no instructor prepares more for anything else other than creative life classes. They were the most demanding. And uh, and I would remember when you said the introduction, I remember me just thinking, oh, God, I hope this goes well. <laughs> you know, so thank you for doing that. That brought me back. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's 
it's funny how the brain works, right? We're going to talk talk a bit about that in this on our conversation today, but yeah. it's also just it is wild how um, how I think it has been eight years uh, since your first Creative Live, and we were just getting nostalgic looking at pictures um, back <laughs> yeah. from those days. And so uh, before we start, again, some of the shout outs are coming through. Maria, who's from Tucson, Arizona. Tucson. Yeah, we've got Ani Ho, and we have um, a, uh, somebody from Tonopah, Arizona as well. So keep those coming in. Those are on Creative Live TV. Uh, but Roberto, okay, so we'll go back to eight years ago, but let's start with today. You yes. are a Canon Explorer of Light. And Canon, at the time of recording, we're uh, at the beginning of August 2020, uh, just released the Canon R5 and R6, the Canon Pro 300 printer, and you were hired to photograph campaigns for all three of those. Yeah. And so... I mean, you've had this career that has led up to that. We're going to talk about define the odds um, and, and your life story. But what did it mean to you to to be hired for for and probably the only person hired to do campaigns for all three of those? I still don't. And I'm not trying to be funny about it. It's just hard to believe because you go back to your beginning of your career. I remember going to this little camera store in Tucson, Arizona called Ritz Camera. And if she's listening in Tucson, Ritz Camera, they went out of business. They closed. And it used to be in the park mall. And I showed up and I, I said, I'm a photographer. I'm trying to be a photographer. I would like to buy my first camera. And my and they sold me my first camera. It was a Canon 20D. And, um, and I remember seeing the posters for the camera and all the ads for the camera. And I just thought like, wow, this is just nuts. Like how crazy the world was so big in the photography world. And you're just like this little guy in Tucson, you know, there's nobody lives in Tucson, you know, well, some people live in Tucson, but it's such a small population, you know, it's just like, what is this? I now, I'm sh I am I remember preparing for the, I, I, I've shot other campaigns for Canon too, for the 5D Mark IV, like uh, three or four years ago, but this one was like a huge release for Canon. It, it was as exciting as the 5D Mark II release when they made video for the first time in an SLR. I remember putting my tr my team my team together, and I said we're gonna be shooting the campaigns for the the, the new Canon printer, the Pro 300, which is a smaller small, smaller brother to the Pro 1000. Then the R6 and the super famous R5 that everybody was talking about, and the R6 was still like a secret camera. Nobody nobody knew much about it. You know, it was kind of like kept in the down low. And we we spent a lot of money on this campaign, tens of thousands of dollars. I had to hire models that were and, and makeup artists that were uh, COVID-19 certified. So everyone had to be COVID-19 certified. You had to pay for insurance for all these people because in case they get sick. So the, the bills just skyrocketed, you know. And I I felt, I don't know how you feel about that. You know, when I, when I took the first picture, I remember I couldn't sleep the night before. I was just anxiety. And I woke up at 4.30 in the morning and I was in this beautiful place in Pioneer Town, California, which is like Joshua Tree National Park area. And we rented an Airbnb there and I walked out and the entire Joshua Tree National Park was in front of me. And I just sat on this little table outside the house and I drank my coffee by myself at 4.35 in the morning. The sun was just rising and I have a photo of that. I'll show, I'll put it up sometime. And I was just like, what happened between that kid in Tucson and that morning when you're waking up to shoot three 
major global campaigns for the largest camera manufacturer in the world. <laughs> it's something else, Kenna. It's something else. I still think it's this has been such a fun ride. I mean, so yeah, so let's talk about that. I mean, what what is... So first of all, you're still feeling anxiety. Yeah. Um, a lot of people a lot of people think that once you get to a point in your career where you are uh, and having authored you know your your wedding books are number 1 and number 2 in wedding photography in history you know and 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 um were you know doing like you said the campaigns for Canon and everything that you've accomplished but you still why do you think you still feel anxiety I think because I'm an educator at heart and you don't want to you want to always do a good job when you're teaching and also when you're shooting campaigns, you don't know what variables are gonna you're gonna get hit by. Um, you don't know if the models are going to be difficult uh, in the photo shoot. You don't know if something's gonna go wrong and you, you, you've planned and this is the one day you have to do it, you know? So one thing that I rely on when I have this anxiety is that I can rest assured that no matter how many things go right, or how many things go wrong, my practicing, my training will always come to the rescue. So you don't have to worry about it, you just do. You worry about it, but you just go like, it's okay, I'm going to rely the fact that I'm well-trained, I can rely on my training, on my skill set, my, my, I've been hammering, like, how to become a better photographer, how to become more proficient, how to become faster, every scenario possible. I have worked it out in my head. I have practiced it. So now it's just time to let it go and produce. You know, I always call photo shoots like a performance and and your practice sessions like your practice sessions. So you're practicing for the performance and the photo shoots or creative life or anything is the performance you practice for. Exactly. And, and, and we've, talked a lot about practice in your classes and your books and and you know in your book titles or picture you know picture perfect you know posing and lighting and 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 practice and and it does go back to for um for people who don't know that I didn't know before your first creative live performance uh that you were say I just called it a performance um that you <laughs> that you were a classical guitar pianist. So we'll we'll put that on hold for a second and and because I know that's where a lot of the practice came from and and go back in time before you did that. So you were born in Mexico City and when how old were you when you moved to the US? I moved to the United States when I was 10 and it was not for a good reason. You know, my my dad was a fashion designer. And he was very wealthy, or I guess, I don't know what money was back then, but I was only a kid. But my dad was very wealthy fashion designer. So in Mexico City, when you have that kind of wealth, you attract danger. <laughs> and so we, uh, there was a lot of threats to our life. Uh, we've had uh, assassination attempts made on me and my dad and my family. We had to go to school with bodyguards and stuff like it was a very scary time. Uh, we didn't know when we were going to go to school and when the kidnappers were going to take us. And they would call and threaten my mom and say, we're going to take your kids when they go to school, if they go to a friend's house. So we ended up uh, having to stay at home, kind of like COVID-19. We had to stay at home orders 
for uh, almost four months, we we never left the house, never. We had to have people bring in groceries and all these things. Um, and then one day, my after four months of being at home, because we were trying to protect, you know, he was trying to protect us, uh, we just got in the car. He said, we're going to the mall. I was like, we're going to the mall. He goes, we're going to the mall. I was like, we haven't left the house in all this time. We get to go to the mall. That's awesome. So we got we, we got out the car. I didn't bring anything. He just said, get in the car. We're going to the mall. So we got to the mall. We, we, went, we got in the car and we drove. It was like six hours later. I was like, this must be quite the mall. Like where where is the mall? <laughs> uh, eight hours, ten hours went by. We were still in the car, and we ended up driving all the way to Tucson, Arizona. Wow! <laughs> so I did not know that story. I did not know that that was the reason that you moved. Um, yeah, no bite to my friends. No, not wow. you guys can bring a box of toys. Nothing. It was here's my shirt, here's my pants. Get in the car. <laughs> And just go. I mean, you you laugh a lot just as a human being, Roberto, and you have <laughs> you smile a lot. But that's a pretty traumatic experience. I mean, how how long did it take sort of for you to sort of adjust to this new world? Was your uh, did your father become continue being a fashion designer in the US? Like what what happened? The trauma was more in the threats for being kidnapped. The the trauma of leaving your house and your friends that you've had since you were born, that wasn't too bad because you're such a young kid, you kind of don't even think about it. Of course I missed them, but I wouldn't say I felt traumatized about it. I just felt sad that I never got to say goodbye. Um, I never got to say goodbye to my family in Mexico either. Like my aunts, my grandma, my my, my uncles, my cousins, everybody, I had to leave them all behind. That was tough. The friends were tough. But I think when you're a kid, you're so resilient. You know, you're so strong. You're so resilient. Things happen. You don't even realize. When my dad moved to the United States, when we moved to the United States, uh, my dad wanted to uh, start a restaurant. So he started a restaurant called, uh, he was going to call it Chubby Chicken, but that was my idea, and I, he thought it was pretty good. <laughs> it was a, it was gonna be a chicken joint <laughs> of some sort. So he ended up thought he thought it was too. People, Americans are not gonna like the name Chubby Chicken because they don't like chubby. So he says we'll call it Mexico a la carte. So he called it Mexico a la carte, which was a complete failure of a name. But um, yeah, he he worked there. We were working there. Uh, like 18 hours a day, we were just there. He hired people, but that's a whole different world. Um, that was a tough, I, when he was there at that restaurant, we were um, in a really bad part of town. And we, my dad put me in a school where I was, uh, it was considered the most dangerous school in the state of Arizona. And that's where I went to junior high. <laughs> so uh, actually somebody stabbed me with a knife uh, on my birthday as a, as a happy birthday present. <laughs> When you were how old? Uh, I was like 13. Yeah. Wow. They stabbed me a little bit. They just drew blood. They didn't really put the knife all the way in. But they, it was like kind of like a, a rite of passage in that school to be stabbed on your birthday. So that was kind of like my uh, my upbringing. <laughs> so, wow. So, yeah, that was not a good situation. You go from this like nice kid in Mexico playing the piano and trying to do these things and having friends to moving to Tucson. At first I went to a nice Catholic school, but I'm talking about 
later on when when I turned like 12 and 13, that's when he opened up the restaurant. And that restaurant was in a bad side of town. And that's when my whole life had to be went under some serious tests. Yeah. Were there other, I mean, you talked about resilience. So, well, I, I know that you, um, where there's a new series coming out uh, called <laughs> Boys State. Yeah, Boys State and, in, in Netflix. And mm-hmm. we were talking about this, um, we were talking about this in advance of, of being live. And you told me that you were part of this competition and at 17, you won. So you're talking about now you're in high school, you're in this um, dangerous part of town, you're being stabbed at 13. Fast forward to you win this competition and meet Bill Clinton. And so tell us about what Boys State is and and how what it took for you to to win this thing. And and maybe a lot of people aren't familiar with it. I wasn't. Uh, Boys State is a huge competition. It's it's nationwide and uh, it's a it's a competition for pop for political political savvy students or politically interested students. Um, I was in, I think what happened before I start talking about how, how I won the whole thing, I have to start saying how I think I won it and I became very strong in my competition because of that very dangerous school I went to. So you see everything in your life happens for a reason. Um, and that school wasn't my high school, by the way. That was my junior high. That's where the stabbing happened. But I just got stabbed. They, the people had guns in their lockers. Uh, it was a drug-infested place. Uh, you you would get beat up for fun, and you and you had to learn how to defend yourself. It was a very rough way to 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 try to get good grades. So if you were a good student, or you tried to be a good student, you you got destroyed in that school. So you really had to manage. How do you handle the gangsters in the school? How do you navigate that? And also, how do you how do you recognize a, as a young 13 impressionable adult that you don't want to follow their footsteps? Okay, but you want to become a good student. But if you are a good student, you'll get beat up by the gangsters, and you will you will no longer have protection. It's kind of like being in prison. You need the protection from those people before another group beats you up. So I ha- you. You become because it's your teeth and your face in the line. You would learn to navigate all sorts of personalities in in a life or death situation. <laughs> like, like it's not like you're trying to like get them to give you promotion at work. You're trying not to get beat up and beat up where you would be hospitalized. So you become very quickly motivated to learn how to navigate. Uh, and, and, and be part of the protection of a gang, but also how to become a good student who's going to succeed as a student in, in academia in that school. And I also try to run cross country and track for that school, which can get you beat up. If you run cross country, you will get beat up because it's kind of like a nerdy sport. So I also had to join track in order for me not to get beat up. So you have to be kind of like navigate both. When Boy State came, I was picked by my by my school, my high school now. So let's move forward to high school now. I was picked by my school. I, I just applied, Kenna. I didn't know I was going to be elected or selected, okay? I applied. I gave a speech. I said I wrote an essay. I said why I wanted to go. I ended up going. I ended up uh, being selected by my school. 
But so was another guy that I won't say his name because I'm not sure if I should. <laughs> but there was another guy in that school that was one of the most gifted political students in the whole nation. And he was also selected from my school. So um, we two people, two people from every school in Arizona went. So there was 500 participants in this boy state. And it was the most competitive thing even till today. I have never had a competition that fierce in my entire life. Boy State and the other one that we'll talk about was by far something in my brain that I will never forget. I didn't realize humans could be that dedicated to winning. Like they will do. Can you tell us? Can anything. you tell us a story? Like what does that even mean? Students, the most. <laughs> competitive thing you've ever experienced, you know, or the, the, sure. to, to go to those lengths, like set the scene. Well, the scene is these are overachievers to the highest degree. These are anal retentive personalities who have never gotten a B in their life. These are people whose grades and their family names uh, are a big weight on their shoulders every single day in order to stay up, up to the standards that these people are held to. These people are these people are not there to mess around. They, they were there to win. And their level of dedication and their level of uh, just... They, okay, let me set the scene. There was breakfast uh, served in the morning, which many students missed because they didn't want to waste time an hour eating so they could stay more time studying. Then those same students would also sometimes miss lunch. So they would not waste any time eating lunch and they would spend that time trying to study rivals. They would meet, they would get together with all sorts of people and they would talk to them like they are your friend, but they were really just studying how you were going to vote and what kind of person you were and what kind of attitude or what kind of words have to come out of their mouth to get them to like you for, for you to run a race, uh, like one of the first political races and that you would become popular, you would win. They would mess up their shoes so they wouldn't look too fancy, so people would relate with them. They would literally grab the shoe and smack it around, beat it up. They would wear clothes that their families would pick out. So you would not be you would not be too preppy, but you would also not be too nerdy. You wouldn't be too cool, but you wouldn't be too much of a jock, a jock that people wouldn't be able to uh, to identify with. Everything was calculated that's the scene <laughs> i mean I, first of all i i last night i went and watched the the trailer for boys state on youtube because i mean it's fa what a fascinating documentary um yeah. but but so then you win this thing you I go won, on yeah. you win you know th then you go to boys, boys nation, nation. Mm -hmm. uh and then you're sitting with president clinton in the White House. What did you, yeah. what, what, like, yeah, yeah. how did that feel? Or what did you talk about? Or, you know, what did that mean to you? I, when I was, so when I was meeting with the president, you mean, like when I was at the White yeah. House with him? Um, well, first, it was a little bit scary because when I walked into the White House, the security department people, the Treasury Department, who's in charge of the president's security, they said to me, welcome to the White House. They give you this briefing. Then they say, We're, you're going to be meeting with the president in about 45 minutes. Um, if you put your hands in your pockets, we will take you down. 
if you make any sudden movements, we will take you down. If you do not listen to what we're saying, we will not let you in. If you laugh at what we're saying, you will no longer be allowed to meet with the president. I was like, okay. I mean, I'm trying not to laugh. Can I? You know, it's like, I'm like, okay, don't laugh, but you're making me laugh because you're acting so crazy. I'm like 16 years old and you're like in my face telling me you're going to take me down. It's kind of funny. Um, then they, they moved me up to another room. And then they moved me up to another room. At that room, this lady comes with a clipboard and like a suit thing. And she comes up to me and she goes, uh, just want to confirm your name is Roberto Valenzuela. Do you have anything in your pocket? So do you have any, do you have any, anything in your health that might make you flinch? I was like, flinch? And they're like, yeah, you cannot, you cannot be flinching because we don't know if you're going to attack. I was like, there will be no flinching. I'm not flinching. Okay. So I, I got in big trouble at the White House because in very Roberto fashion, I actually had a present for Bill Clinton in my pocket, which I purposely did not tell them I was going to graph. I was going to put my hand in my pocket and I was going to be giving it to him. So uh, finally, the moment of truth came where they told me to stand up and I was standing and I was facing a door and this lady opens the door and she says, you can go in and meet with President Clinton. And I started walking towards the door. That was, it felt like the green mile. If, I don't know if you know what that is, but it felt like the green mile. You're about to meet the most powerful man in the world because you won a very difficult thing to win. And you, I was also winning the national competition too. So you're meeting with this president who also won the same competition when he was 17, back in 1969, he met, sorry, back in 1967, he met President Kennedy. And so the doors open and there I see Bill Clinton and uh, waiting for me. The first thing he does is he just goes like this to me. And then I, I kind of started feeling nervous. Like I felt like I, I, I was gonna faint uh, as I was walking, but he actually came up to me and said, come on in, don't worry about it. And that made me feel a little bit better. And then I sat down, he shook my hand. We, there was a photographer on the side, we shook. I was very nervous and I'll show you the photo. I'll sh I have the photo still. I'm like this and he's like just smiling. And um, in my shirt, I had a little button with a picture of him, uh, with picture of him meeting President Kennedy. And then I have one in my pocket to give to him. So after I was done with that whole thing, we sat down. He told me what are what's what's what what are my what are my concerns in Arizona from a political point of view, and uh, how did I win Boy State? What did I do? Because he also was there, so he, we were talking shop. He knew what to ask because I was there and he was there, so we were talking shop. I told him I'm, I'm very nervous, and he goes, "You know what, Roberto? I'm just a guy. In two more years, I'm gonna be a private citizen. Who cares?" Just relax. Let's talk. I'm so excited about your your future. He's like, are you going to run for politics? I was like, yeah, I am. And I'm in my 40s or 50s. He's like, you call me. I will I will answer your phone call. I will I will support you. I was just like, okay. And he says, and I don't say that lightly. <laughs> I was like, no, you're the president. Of course you don't. Um, so we talked about Arizona. I said, Mr. President, I have a present for you in my pocket, but I don't want to get shot by your by your snipers. So can I give it to you? He goes, you do? <laughs> like I, have, I do. He goes, so he has to tell his people to chill. 
And I took the thing out of my pocket and the Secret Service people just shook their heads like this. And I gave it to him and he put it on him and he thanked me. And then I said goodbye to him. And then I walked to the back of the White House where I was being interviewed by CNN and C-SPAN and all these different things. Yeah, it was a good experience. Have you called him? <laughs> Eight more years. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> when I turn 50, I will begin. Okay. I, okay. I run for California governor. There you go. You heard, you heard it here first. Yeah, exactly. In creative life. Here we go. Beretta, uh, what I'm curious about is this, the drive to, not only the drive to, you know, win that competition or the drive to accomplish all the things that you've accomplished, but tell me about uh, what you learned about studying people um, through this sort of, this this experience with Boys State, Boys Nation, that you have applied to working as a photographer where you have to sort of study people? Uh, studying people is um, probably the thing I do best. Uh, I My life depended on it. Uh, winning these competitions depended on it. And I've made mistakes reading people too, by the way. I've made plenty of mistakes. And I'm actually surprised I made those mistakes. I, I should be quite good at reading people, but sometimes you miss the mark. And, and I have examples, but you know, people have, I think more importantly than people, it's what people have done to me in my, in my upbringing that have caused uh, quite a bit of adversity in my life. Like you, I, a lot of challenges have happened. Uh, being the first Mexican-born winner of Boy State was not an easy feat. And going through the, the discrimination of being the first Mexican-born winner of the national one, the 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 Boy National one. Uh, three people win that one: President, uh, Speaker of the House, and Chief Justice. I want the Chief Justice. But when you you go through a lot of adversity. You, I don't think it's about, how do you put this? It's difficult to answer. That's a great question, Ken. It's, it's I, I have such a deep fear of, of what people are really thinking. Does that make sense? Like, I know that everyone smiles and everyone's super cool and I love them all, but I have seen the, the I have been exposed to the other side of what people are really thinking. And I have, you have to become very in tune with something that's very deep in their brain for your survival, basically, at least for my survival. So you become kind of like a chameleon where you very quickly make a connection with that person's almost inter inner brain. And then you become a chameleon to fit that brainwave not to be a part of it but to not be against it that is the that is the line it is not you don't want to be a part of that wavelength you just don't want to be in, in the in the wrong side of it does that make sense and that's made me a very I, I think that's made me a very good educator because you when people learn something they learn it in their own way. And I'm not teaching on the surface. I'm teaching deep 
deep inside, I tell my students in my posing workshops that I teach that I'm not trying to teach you how to pose. I'm trying to, I'm trying to make it so you cannot forget how to pose. Not being able to forget is because something's very engraved in your brain. It is part of almost your animalistic being. But remembering something is just on the surface. It's very, very quickly to forget. It's short-term memory. I'm after making you have a hard time forgetting. If I can achieve, especially in posing, where it's the most complicated topic in photography, I think, even more than lighting. Uh, but if I can achieve you not being able to forget how to do it, I think that's a, the deepest level of, of learning and the deepest level of teaching I can do. I, I think that's so fascinating because to, to this, the flip of I'm teaching you not to forget, uh, versus I'm, because there's the, like you said, the, the knowing of something, the remembering of something, and then the knowing of something where, like you said, it's so ingrained that you can't forget it. I mean, it's such a, it, it is a beautiful way to put it. I mean, it's like, we talk about muscle memory, but does that, mm -hmm. does that, is that where the, this concept of, you know, practice, um, getting to that point, um, to where you cannot forget something, it, is that where that comes from? And if so, I would love for you to talk about, um, I mentioned earlier that I learned when at your first Creative Live, that you are a you are a trained classical pianist, I'm pianist, a, a guitar classical guitar player, mm -hmm. and I were, I can visualize, I can see it now, you sitting there playing for us. I think we must have live streamed it because that's what we did. We live streamed anything and everything that was you know entertaining, mm -hmm. um, and and so tell me about why you became a a, a a musician in that way. Okay, well, the story is not what you would think, and it's a little intense, and I'll make it quick. But when I won Voice Nation, I was given uh, scholarships to the state schools that I went to, so NAU, U of A, ASU, University of Arizona. And I also got, I can also get the president to give me a presidential nomination to the United States Air Force Academy, which is where I was gonna go to school. But when they found out that I wasn't an American citizen, the United States government wiped me wiped me out of all my scholarships. So they basically took away every scholarship I, I was given for winning the national competition. So when I was going to go to the Air Force Academy, they said, um, you can no longer apply. When I went to the U of A, they said, you can no longer apply and you can no longer get any kind of help and your scholarship has been revoked. So I was the 17 year old kid who just accomplished the impossible. And I thought my path was set to go to the Air Force Academy and become a four star general in the Air Force. And who knows what to, I can't even pay for a community college. <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't even pay for community college, which in Tucson is called Pima Community College. But, um, uh, I went to the court, we went to, we went to the court and the judge said that he decided to wipe, wipe me out of all of that and all these different things. And I remember my, my heart felt devastated to the highest degree. Uh, and then he did say that 
I was not able, even able to allow to work in the United States either. So the only way I could pay for college, if I choose to, I will be accepted into colleges if I apply, but I cannot, I will not be allowed for financial aid and I will not be able to allow, I was not allowed to work in the United States unless I was an independent contractor. Okay. So I couldn't apply at McDonald's or anything like that. So I said, okay. So I left the courtroom saying, how am I going to pay for college? This is back in April and I was a high school senior. That Sunday I went to church and they were playing the guitar. This band was playing and I was just like watching. I was clapping and singing and playing and watching this entire thing. And it was a, there were a bunch of Brazilian guitar players. And I said like, oh, that's so beautiful. And then I said, that, that sounds so great. And I talked, I talked to a guy after the church service and I said, um, that sounded so cool. He goes, well, I can come to your house and I can show you a few things. I was like, oh, no, uh, really? He goes, yeah, but he was going to charge me like $30 for half an hour. I was like, $30 for half an hour? He goes, yeah, music lessons cost uh, $60 an hour or $30 for half an hour. I was like, no kidding. Wait, I can make $30 in half an hour if I teach guitar lessons? And the guy's like, well, yeah, well, you have to be a you know professional guitarist, of course. I was like, so I asked the church uh, if they could buy me a guitar because I couldn't get a guitar. They were like $100. I couldn't afford it. So I got a guitar from the church and um, I called a friend from the church and I said, would you be able to have your son come to my house and teach me guitar uh, for free? And his name was Dustin, which, by the way, he did come to my house and he did teach me how to play. And he also just passed away. That guy just died. And he was my best friend. But he, uh, it was the worst. Uh, he died like a year ago. But he came to my house. He's like, well, wh what do you know about the guitar? And I, I, and I said, I don't know anything. I, I barely know how to spell the word guitar. <laughs> you know? And he's like, What's your, what do you want to learn? I was like, I don't want to learn. I want to be a class. I want to be a guitar teacher so I can pay for college. I'm not trying to learn. I'm trying to pay for college. He goes, what? <laughs> it's just like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> you know? I was like, no, I'm actually not. And I'm not kidding. And he was like, do you know how to read music? I was like, no, I've never read music in my life. So he was like, I don't even know where to start with you. You're crazy. And I was like, start with the first thing. How do you read music? He goes, that takes a long time. I was like, start with the first thing, you know, long story short, he left six hours later. He was completely, uh, and he was completely in shock of my, my, my devotion to this, to this goal. He says he's never seen someone so determined in his life. And I said, it's either that, or I don't go to college, you know? So he, he just kept repeating. So your plan is in three months to pay for college with guitar lessons when you don't even know how to play. It was like, correct. Anyway, three, he came the next week and he came the week after that. And then he never came again and he didn't come anymore. And after the third time he came, I was already, I was practicing like you have never seen anyone practice in your life. I was day and night, the same devotion I used in Boy State and Boy's Nation, multiply that by two. And that's how strong I was going at it with the guitar. Then about a month later, I was hired as the head guitar teacher for a brand new 
brand new music store that was opening in Tucson called Beaver's Bandbox, and I became the head guitar teacher only 30 days after my first guitar lesson. <laughs> ah, good times. And to make the story even shorter, I paid for college two months later. So... I think the fascinating thing about that is your motivation, mm -hmm. you know, and being in a do or die essential, you know, situation mm -hmm. and, and that, that, that it was so surprising to him or that, you know, it's a, it's a surprising story. Um, <laughs> but it just so clearly, um, it's such an important lesson as to what motivates you, you know, what are you motivated by and, and that intention therefore, you know, d drives, you know, whatever that thing is inside of you that gets you to practice and, and learn so methodically. I'm, I'm, I'm curious again, like going back to your family and like where does that come from? Um, what, what I, I was looking at your Instagram account and saw this beautiful picture of you and your mom. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and what influence did your mom have on you? And, and is it the creativity side? Is it the, this motivation side? Tell us about her. Well, I think that's an amazing question. And I thank you for asking her about her. Uh, she's, um, uh, She's definitely one of the people that I remember. Uh, she probably is the one that instilled that motivation in me, that dedication in me. And I'm not talking about dedication like, I want to learn how to do yoga. Like I'm talking about like real do or die motivation. People get motivated in two different ways. I'm excited to write a blog and I'm motivated to write a blog or I'm excited to learn how to play volleyball or whatever the skill may be. And then there is a side of you that is in you, but very few people will ever tap into that side, which is the do or die motivation side of you. And it is in you. I believe it's in everybody. If you put people through enough obstacles and adversity and challenges where you think the world is just against you, you're just never going to get out of it, and you just hit rock bottom, that is when that ignites. When that ignites, you become a human being like you have never seen. It is a very different side of the human race that unfortunately not many people will ever experience. It's almost like you have to go through a lot to, to experience that. My mom went through that. When my mom, my, my dad, um, he got arrested for domestic violence against me and my brother and my sisters, but mainly me and my brother. So he... He was arrested and taken to Mexico and deported and all this stuff. And my mom said, um, well, now now I'm screwed. I have four children to feed and we have no more person that's going to be able to provide us with any kind of anything. So we got together as a family, Kenna. I was about 12 years old. I was 12. My brother was four years older than me. My sisters were two years and my, other, my little sister was four years younger than me. We got together as a family and we said, what can we do so we don't starve to death? <laughs> you know. So we decided, well, we cannot do anything because we don't know what to do. My mom doesn't speak English. We could barely kind of speak. So we decided 
let's be mates. So we decided to, uh, we went from a rich family in Mexico with a fashion designer. We lived in a multi-million dollar house in Mexico City. I used to wear a suit to, to dinner and we decided to be mates. So we uh, we decided to be mates and I became a maid for seven years of my life. I was cleaning houses. I was in charge of the bathrooms. That was my job, the bathrooms. So I always cleaned the toilets and I scrubbed them and the, the, the sinks and the shower. And, and, um, and I remember how badly I was treated by the people that were in the house. Like I remember one day I was cleaning and I was putting the stuff like the hair products in and organizing them. And I put them on the shelf. And I remember the guy came up to me. He was a, he was a pharmacist and I will never forget. And he says, come here, come here, come here, come here. And then he started trying to speak Spanish. Like, he's like, do not move the stuff in my bathroom to the thing. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Do you understand? Don't need to speak in, in Spanish to you. To... I was like, holy smokes, man, do not blow up, you know? But I went to my mom and I said, what happened? My mom told me to, to learn to control myself because we need the income. And boy, can I, let me tell you something. When somebody treats you that bad and you have to eat it for breakfast and control yourself and still say thank you for the opportunity of cleaning your house and, and we'll see you next week. Oh my gosh, you'll learn how your brain just can do things you don't think is, is possible, you know. But um, we, I did the houses for, for seven years and I then I did yards for people. I used to go to yards in the summer of Tucson. It was 110 degrees and I felt I was going to be hospitalized from how hot it was. But I, I did people's yards for about four years out of those seven years. So I have been a maid for a big chunk of my life, a maid and a yard worker. <laughs> what? was the switch like where where did i mean this the, not the switch in that you you did the work and um and didn't i don't know if the words rebel or whatever like you 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 did it and and again now here we are and you're you're shooting these you know massive the biggest campaigns you know for canon as a canon explorer of light like how did you switch to the photography career or when did that part come in? And is that what pushed you to become a teacher, an author, this like methodical? Um, well, that's certainly that methodical practicing is something that has definitely launched me in every way, shape and form. Um, there is practicing and then there's deliberate practicing. And with deliberate practicing, you could master skills very quickly. Uh, there's no shortcuts. It's just a lot of work, but you can do it. Like I'm proof of that. <laughs> like you can definitely do it. Um, and I think what happened was when I was, uh, when let's just go back to paying for college. When I paid for college, I ended up getting three degrees, a business degree, an international business degree and a marketing degree. So I got an economics degree and a marketing degree and an international business degree, which was a certificate. So I got three degrees from the University of Arizona. And then I got a job as a high school teacher. And then uh, in that school, which happens to be the school I went to high school in, I became a teacher at that school. Um, my English teachers, like we went to the teachers meeting for the first, like the orientation of the new teachers. And the, my English teacher was there. She's like, 
you look familiar. I was like, yeah, I'm Roberta. I used to be your student. <laughs> and so she was like, what are you doing here? It's like, I'm a teacher now. She's like, here? She's, I was like, yep. <laughs> so I became a teacher at that high school. Um, I, I taught guitar lessons for 10 years. I taught 4,000 people how to play the guitar. And from that experience, I was hired as a as a business teacher at this high school. And at that high school, uh, I was teaching business. And the president of the United States at that time, which was George Bush Jr., he said um, he wanted to, to provide a program that will, that will motivate students that are in high school to go to business school. So he gave every business teacher in the country a $90,000 grant to have a student run business, like a real business that the students were going to run. So I got the $90,000 and I asked my students, guys, we have $90,000 to, to start a business in this school. And we're going to have to have a marketing department, a finance department, uh, uh, a creative department, everything. What business do you guys want to do? And my students said, we'll I said, think about it. And tomorrow we come and we decide. Well, the next day, those students can decided on something that changed the course of my life forever because they said we decided to go for digital photography <laughs> i did not know that that was the story either yes i have so, a lot of stories <laughs> did you so did you learn photography then to teach them photography or as part of this you know grant and business program and and then then how did that launch into was being a wedding photographer your first um career within the photography path sure um i got the grant and then i i, I got the cameras i when i was buying the cameras i started calling photographers in my city saying i'm an, i'm a teacher at this high school i was uh, inquiring for help can you help me i don't know anything about photography i actually didn't even know that the lens and the cameras could separate like I thought all cameras were like the little the little ones you buy at Best Buy or whatever, the ones that have the little thing that zooms in and out when you turn it on. I thought that was a camera. So then the guy, uh, the photographers in Tucson actually gave me the first introduction to the photography industry when they said, we don't want to breed more photographers into the city. So they didn't want to help. So uh, I ended up calling a random photography studio in Minnesota. <laughs> in Minnesota. I called and said, hi, I'm calling you from Tucson, Arizona. I know you're in Minnesota. He goes, I am. He goes, you're, are you the main photographer in your studio? He goes, I am. He goes, I know this is odd, but I need to ask you a favor. Can you please tell me what cameras to buy? I'm, I'm a teacher that's supposed to be starting a photography business program. And he goes, what? <laughs> he was like, okay. And he goes, well, you need to get at least two cameras. So you need to get some lights. I was like, okay. And I was writing it down lights. And he's like, get some strobes. I was like, what are strobes? His strobes are the things that flash. I was like, so, so lights flash. And how do you make them flash? He goes, you need to get a trigger. He goes, oh my gosh. And he started freaking out. He was like, I need to help you. Let's schedule a meeting. So he helped me buy all this gear. I ordered about $25,000 worth of cameras. And when it, when it all arrived, it was like Christmas morning, but on steroids. And we had bought strobes and gels and lights and lenses and flashes and all these different stuff. And, and I was just like, what are all these buttons? What's ISO? What's all these fractions like aperture? Why is the shutter speed backwards? What the hell? It was the most 
overwhelming time in my life. And my students, the ones that really liked photography, they would call their parents and they said that if they could stay at the school till 6 p.m. And, and then the 6 p.m. went to 9 p.m. So the parents of about 15 kids would pick up their kids at 9 p.m. at night and they would have to drop off dinner to them at the school because they were still with me trying to figure out how to work these cameras. So we had, and I have a photo of me with my 18 students. We, we, we were all learning together what all these camera buttons were. And I would get home at 10 p.m. I would have to start grading papers and do the whole thing. And then I would go back to the school in the morning and teach all my classes. And that's, I became so excited about photography I was learning. And also during that time, I was getting married. So we had to hire a wedding photographer, which is why I decided to become a wedding photographer. <laughs> it, it, like you said, everything happens for a reason. And it's so fascinating that you can look backwards and see those things. But when you're in the moment, you are sort of, you are taking those opportunities as they come. That's right. Uh, and I mean, it seemingly, you know, a lot of people will sit and hem and haw over something. Do you make decisions quickly? Like, are you that person that something's posed to you and you're like, yes or no, yes or no, or this or that? Or are you, do you, do you hem and haw? Um, that's a great question again. And I either feel it or I don't. Okay. And I mean that in a very deep level. So if I want to do something, I, that's not, I, I feel it. When I feel it, it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. Okay. Um, I get feelings like I get like a calling, like there's a calling in you to do something that kind of is, that's the kind of term I like to say, I have a feeling about this. If I have a feeling it's because I feel like there's a calling to do that. Uh, and then there's all these passions, like I want to learn how to play the piano. I want to learn how to play basketball. I want to learn how to be a computer programmer. Those are not what I mean I, I, I would make a decision on. Um, when it comes to those things, I actually think about it a lot because it's my time being taken away from what I'm supposed to be doing. So I'm very deliberate on thinking about the pros and cons. Like right now, I'm learning how to be a computer programmer. I'm, I'm, starting, I'm learning JavaScript. You are? Yeah. What, but for, for what motivation? I don't know yet, but I'm doing it. And this is one of those things where I am not feeling like I'm getting a calling to be a, a programmer, but I'm feeling very passionate about. So I did have to think long and hard. Do I want to go into that rabbit hole? Do I really want to spend my time there? And the answer is, I'll, I'll, I'll dabble on it. I'll, I'll be careful because my wife gets very scared. Once I get into it, it becomes like a full-time job. And she's just like, oh, dear Lord, please do not make this to be the, like the next thing, you know? So I, I'm being cautious about it. I am learning JavaScript. I, I programmed an entire game a week ago. Uh, I programmed it from scratch. It was about 182 lines of code. And I did it without referencing anything. And I'm very happy about that. I thought that was very cool. But now I feel even more passionate about it. So now I'm like, what else can I program? <laughs> you know? So, but no, I think the answer to your question is it depends. If it's 
if it's something that I'm feeling like it's a calling, then I don't think about it. I just do it. Like photography. I quit my job as a high school business teacher the same year that I got tenured. So the, the high school on the state gave me a tenured job. They say you can now have a job for life and it's very hard to get tenured. And then I called the principal uh, two days after I got the tenured and I said, I'm going to be resigning after the school year. And then she goes, why? You got tenured. And I said, I think I'm going to be a photographer. <laughs> I'm going to be a wedding photographer. And she's like, what? She's like, I want to be a photographer. And and then she's like, aren't you the only income earner in your family? Because your wife's in school. I was like, yes. And that's why I know I'm going to go for it all the way. Because my wife was not making an income during that time. She was getting her master's degree in engineering. Um, so I had to... Um, figure out how to get into this and get into it all the way very quickly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I want to give your wife, your beautiful wife, Kim, a shout out. Kimbo. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and I'm curious because a, a lot of people, when, when women get pregnant and have kids and they have their career and it's a, you know, people ask like, Oh, how did becoming a mother change your career? I'm curious how, becoming a father has changed your career as a photographer, your beautiful son, Lucas, with another one on the way at the time of recording. Um, I, I can remember, actually, I can remember seeing a post where you said something about you cannot, like that you didn't know you were capable of the type of love um, as until you had a son. It was something like that. Yeah. Uh yeah, you know, there's like there's like a potato and then there's like mashed potatoes and then your heart becomes like liquefied potatoes. And then when you have kids, it becomes like liquefied potatoes that have had air installed into that liquefaction and you just become this big, airy mush. I don't know how to explain this. It's It's been fun being a dad. I ex I'm experiencing it for the first time. Uh, I've have, I have three years experience being a dad now. And I don't know what to say. It's been it's been very difficult and it has been so much fun. And then when people say like, oh, it's 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 such a miracle, and all it is such a miracle. It it is you can't believe that you made a human being and that that person is you. Um your personality changes. You you don't act like a goofy person anymore that much. You you start realizing that everything you do and say and how you act actually will be copied by your son. So you don't you you actually kind of get slapped in the face in this reality check sort of thing, um, and even your profession as a photographer. I remember teaching my first workshop after Lucas was born, and I was saying hi to everyone. I started crying because I was trying to. I was saying I want to teach this better than ever now because now I have a son. I just remember like you 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 become quite quite focused and you become less distracted with distractions. Does that make sense? Well, it goes back to you talking about what you choose, how you choose to spend your time, you know, and, yeah. and what becomes most important. That's right. That's right. Um, I remember when he was just a little baby, he, he was sleeping with us and he was, he, I was like sleeping and he, I woke up and he was, his head turned towards me and his eyes were wide open when I, when I managed to open my eyes in the morning. 
and his nose was about two inches from my face. And when I opened my eyes, I just saw his eyes up looking at me right there. And it gave me this feeling like I've never felt before. I was just like, holy smokes, like, what is that? That is this little alien sitting there. I don't know. I'm uh, I'm excited to be at that. It kind of makes me feel like you have a new a new chance in life to start over and be and become another person from scratch. You know, like I want to do things I wouldn't do before. Like um, I want to go get wet so my son sees me get wet. I hate getting wet, by the way. So if any water ever hits me, I, I can't stand it. Just so you know, everybody, I do take showers, okay, but I. I, I try to take my showers quick and then I get the heck out, you know, but water in my, in my skin, just, ah, so I, yes, I, I tried to go get wet and my jeans get all wet and I, I took them to the beach and I'm like, oh, like I'm a mess from being wet. And my wife is shocked. She was like, you're okay. And I was like, yeah, you know, Lucas is having fun. So it, it's been cool to experience how your body and your personality changes, you know? It's a it's a beautiful thing, and I'm I, it's I'm I'm curious for another time how you've approached parenting in this methodical way that you, you have done with so many other things in your life, or have you, or have you just let it, let it be? <laughs> uh, I tried the methodical way, and it has kicked my butt really good. Um, turns out my kid is very he's kind of a he's a very uh, strong personality child, and you cannot control who they are and you cannot control their personality. So I'm actually learning from him how to be a better dad. And for my sister, Blanca, who's a therapist, she's teaching me, but I've learned that no matter how much you study, you're going to get your butt kicked by being a parent and, and there's no way around it. So my answer to your question is my approach is learn as I go and just try to not screw him up too bad. But I'm just trying to, uh, I'm just trying to be a good dad to him, a good example. And it's just hard because you know, kids, especially at three, they they are physical, man. They are they get frustrated, and they want to show you that they're frustrated, and their anger shows. And you're just like, what's gonna happen when they're 18? Like, what do I have to do to calm this creature down? So it's been fun. It's been fun. Uh, you become helpless that no matter how methodical you think you may be, it's useless against them. It turns out we are all human. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Well, well, what a fun time. Yeah. Thank you so much, Roberto. Um, awesome. One kind of, I just want to have you, you know, coming back around to the photographers who are, are listening out there. Like what's one sort of final piece of advice that you might give yourself again, like, you know, back 20 years ago or what have you, when you were starting knowing what you know now? Um, like in terms of photography, you mean? Like, yeah, like, yeah. Like in terms of photography, um, I think, I think I want to say to be smart and do your research about, about, about marketing gimmicks and, and product gimmicks and a lot of things that people spend money on. Be smart. Don't be a don't be a sucker for for stuff like that. I, I want to say, like, think about where, where you spend your money. But I think education and practice is going to always be there for you. And I and I by education, I mean, like, think about who's really who are you really paying to teach you? 
like be careful not to be sucked into to their po online popularity or or wh whatever they find out if that person is truly a good educator find out if before you spend money on products ask yourself is is your education at a better point before you spend money on more gear gear is amazing and we all love it and it's fun but I would have been in a really bad spot if I wouldn't have prioritized my education first. And like I said before, study your gear, become knowledgeable so that your gear comes alive. Your gear will come alive with your brain. Think of your gear like a piano or a guitar. It doesn't do anything on its own. You need a person that's a master to play it. So study your stuff. Um, and you don't have to study from me. You can study from anyone that you feel a connection with, that you feel strongly about, if you connect with that person and you find them to be a great educator, then put your money there. Um, and that's what I have to say is just be smart about photography is a very easy uh, money trap to get sucked into with gear and stuff. And, and I want to say, we, we don't want to be average anymore. We don't want to be an average. I think photography is like a world of average. Let's not be an average for industry. Like, let's be a, 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 a an industry where people say you're you're a professional pro, you're a professional photographer. That's amazing. You want to be that guy. It's like when you're saying you're a heart surgeon, you're an architect. You don't want to say something like, "Oh God, you're a you're a photographer." Like, we want to differentiate ourselves from professionals to the billions of people just having expensive SLR or mirrorless cameras out there. Anyone that's just a basic person being a content creator is, that's cool, but that's not a, the skills of a serious professional photographer. So I think it is our duty, and you too, Creative Life and Kenna and every educator in the world to push everybody who's serious about photography so we make this industry respected again. It's not as respected as it could be. It's almost like if you don't know what to do with your life, be a photographer. Like, let's bring it back to being a respected profession, <laughs> you know, because photography is hard. It takes a lot of skills. I have spent 10 years of my life practicing. I just have a YouTube. I started a YouTube channel for practicing things. And that YouTube channel, it's just my name, Roberto Valenzuela. Go check it out because it, it shows you my practice sessions because and I hope those, the people that are listening to that YouTube and they subscribe to it, they actually do the exercises. They're not just watching the exercises. They actually do them. And I hope you can follow me on Instagram. It's Roberto underscore photo. And if you want to learn lighting, I'm teaching a lighting conference with Joel Grimes, uh, Pratik Nike, Jen Rosenbaum and myself in Tucson, Arizona in May 2021. And that's called thephotocreators.com. That's the website, thephotocreators.com. And it's dedicated to helping photographers kick some serious butt in lighting. And it's not like floofy, floofy, fluffy stuff. It's like, let's get to it. Let's get serious. Let's play. Let's let's have fun, but let's become great at lighting. So. Awesome. Awesome. Well, you just Thank answered you. all of my where can people find you and follow you and learn from you. Um, so. <laughs> yeah. So that is, um, yes, thank you. I, I wholeheartedly agree with your sentiments about, um, about the industry and, um, and it's photography is hard Yeah. <laughs> and bu business is hard, Yeah. Uh, but there are a, a lot of tools out there. If you learn something from this conversation about the power of 
being dedicated uh, to whatever it is um, mm-hmm. that you are looking to learn methodically so that you cannot forget it. Um, exactly. That That is um, huge, huge advice. So, Roberto, thank you so much for joining us. I want to give a couple of shout outs uh, to some people who have been tuning in, uh, specifically Ani Hull, who says Roberto's humanity, humility, generosity, and talent have no bounds. And I'm so proud to know him. He treats all people with such kindness and his story could have brought him to a different man. Thank you so much for sharing this amazing story of your life. Thank you. Beautiful. And other comments coming in, Luis, BJ, Lou, uh, as well as RL, you know, coming in from all over. So thank you again, Roberto. Thank you to everybody for tuning in. If you missed the conversation, you can go back and watch it, whether that's on, you know, Facebook, YouTube, our Twitter feed. It will be replaying uh, on Creative Live TV. And also you can uh, see all the versions of our We Are Photographers podcast. You can listen to all the versions of the podcast on creativelive.com slash podcast. Uh, all the back, I think we're at episode 85 now as of today. So um, lots of amazing people to learn their life stories from. But Roberto, uh, once again, thank, thank you. you so fun. Thank you. Uh, to, mm-hmm. to go down memory lane in the past eight years. But for everybody else, we will see you next time right here on Creative Live TV. Thanks for tuning in. Bye, guys. Thank you, Kenna. Bye. I'm Kenna Klosterman, and you've been listening to the We Are Photographers podcast from Creative Live. We originally recorded this episode live on Creative Live TV. That's our new live stream to entertain, inspire, and connect us all coming from the living rooms, kitchens, and home studios of the world's top creators. Check out what's playing now and upcoming shows on creativelive.com TV. Be sure to follow Roberto Valenzuela via his website, robertovalenzuela.com. On Instagram at Roberto underscore photo, subscribe to his YouTube channel and check out his upcoming lighting conference at thephotocreators.com. At Creative Live, we believe there's a creator and a photographer in all of us. And yes, that means you. If you're looking to get fresh perspectives, inspiration, or skills to boost your hobbies, business, or life, head over to creativelive.com and check out the creator past. That's our subscription that gives you access to over 2,000 classes on demand, including Roberto's. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review We Are Photographers wherever it is you listen to podcasts. We'd love to hear from you, and a five-star review goes a long way. And if you like this episode, tell someone about it. Word of mouth is the best way for us to reach more creators just like you. You can stay up to date with everything happening here at Creative Live by following us on social media at Creative Live everywhere. And if you have requests for who you'd like me to feature on the podcast, send me a message at Kenneth Klosterman on Instagram and at Kenneth K Photo on Twitter. Thank you again to Roberto Valenzuela, and I'll see you all next time for another episode of We Are Photographers.